Welcome to the Oxford Psychiatry Podcast Series, brought to you today by Daniel Morn. I'm an advanced trainee in psychiatry here at the Oxford Deanery. Today I've got David Thurston with me. Thank you for coming, David. Pleasure. David is a, a consultant in uh, general adult psychiatry and he heads up the assertive outreach team here at Oxford. Um, David, maybe we could begin by um, talking a bit about how an uh, assertive outreach team differs from uh, a general uh, community mental health team. Thank you. The fundamental difference is the way of working. An assertive outreach team works as a team and rather than as case management. For instance, in the CMHT, a care coordinator will have their list of patients and basically nobody else in that team will know these patients. On the other hand, in the assertive outreach team, given that there's a much less caseload, um, everybody in the team will have met and will be able to give me a pen picture of every patient in the team. Uh, furthermore, we work more as a team than a, a community mental health team um, in that we meet every day. Uh, we used to meet twice a day as a planning meeting in the morning and a feedback meeting in the evening, but we moved to just having a, um, a feedback and planning meeting in the evening. So we meet every day and any patient, every patient is briefly mentioned um, during that feedback meeting and anybody who is of concern we will have a longer discussion about. So it really is team working um, in the extreme, really. Everyone knows about every patient. There's a meeting every day, and maybe the, you know, rich discussions are had about, uh, about management from, from all members of the team. What, what's the reason for that, that team working? Because a sort of outreach um, managed quite a different type of patient, don't they? Yes, I think the sort of outreach came from the sort of... Um, the way people disengaged from normal mental health services and why they disengaged and what it was we could do to try and engage them again. Um, it started in Australia and America and um, the forerunners had developed this team approach um, and we are a tertiary service. We only have um, referrals from community mental health teams of people who are difficult to engage, who go in and out of hospital, the old um, revolving door people, often the people have been admitted many times under the Mental Health Act uh, and then disengage from services and stop their medication. Um, they obviously have complex social problems. More often than not, they have what is known as dual diagnosis, that is, they probably use substances in a fairly indiscriminate way. Um, <clears throat> and their housing is often problematic. And they have difficulty in accessing benefits, if anything, problems. So the whole nature of a certified outreach was to do everything in-house so that you might engage with somebody better by helping them with their benefits than banging on about their medication or whatever it was or their symptoms. And so we have a variety of, or we used to be able to have a variety of ways of doing this. We might put somebody's blinds up in their flat or, or something very practical, um, go for a walk or go downtown or do something that is just different from their usual um, engagement. So when you talk about um, these patients, it seems to me that they're, they're, they're people with high disability and uh, struggle to maybe uh, maintain independent lives. And for that reason, the care delivered by the Assertive Outreach Team is, is multifaceted. You don't just think in one dimension 
medication, you, you actually think of every aspect of their life. Absolutely. And most important from my point of view and the philosophy that we've adapted, we think, who is this person? What is it they want out of their life? And what is there in this word that recovery is used so widely now? And recovery is not about me thinking you've recovered. It's about the person reaching a, a level that they feel that they can manage their lives in a way that they want to. And so the whole, our whole philosophy is trying to fi- help people find where they want to be in life and where they want to go. Um, so even though we're our, we, we, we manage a high-risk population, we're sort of in between um, adult mental health care and forensics. So we have a number of people who... Um, bang into society in a sort of criminal justice way and um, and quite high obviously people with serious enduring mental illness have higher risks than other people so we work in a sort of high risk way with people but essentially what we're trying to engage with them is trust that there's something about what we do with them that is different from what was done to them before and I emphasise the word done Mm. We don't want to do things to people, even though, yes, we do detain people and we do um, keep people on long-term Section 17, extended Section 17 leave. Um, I'm not a big fan of CTOs, but that's um, a, a different issue. And CTOs are community treatment and orders, orders yes. that are mandated treatment in the yes, community. My, my issue with that is that they're not very honest unless people are still coerced into having treatment, so let's mm. be honest about it. And I've never had any problems in... Um, managing people this way and in fact over the years we have less people on on extended section 17 leave than we used to whereas since community treatment orders have come in there's been a great increase in the number of people who are coerced into treatment. Mm. Yes and the recent evidence um, that isn't in favour of community treatment orders and the randomised control trial by, by Tom Burns didn't Absolutely. come down in favour. Yeah, no, so the trial, yes. What, what I'd like to talk to you about, David, is is actually um, your perspective on mental health care, because um, it, it, well, today's mental health care, because you've been um, working in Oxford as a as a psychiatrist for many years. Um, I don't know how many years. On and off, I came to Oxford in the um, 1974 to train as in psychiatry, and then I was in general practice for quite a long time, but still had a high. Um, it was in the days before community care, so I had a high, because I was known, I had a high mental health um, caseload and um, did Section 17, uh, Section 12 work. And so I was, and did set up a, 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 day, a day service for people with serious mental mm-hmm. illness when I was a GP. So I've sort of been involved in, in uh, mental health care in Oxford over that long time. So when I first came to Oxford, I think Littlemore Hospital had about 700, 800, 900 patients. Wow. And, and the Warmford Hospital here that's now only got three wards has had 250 patients. And it, and it was just a different world then, completely different. But I think there's been more change since 2000 or thereabouts when I sort of came back in the last 10 years or four, 15, 14, 15 years than there were in the... 20 years before that Mm. in the whole approach to how we see people with mental health problems Um, it's more of a process now it's more of a sort of seeing somebody as a risk I find that quite difficult seeing somebody Mm. as a risk I wouldn't like to be considered to be a risk if I was Mm. a patient and this emphasis on process and seems to me 
to be somewhat at the detriment of all of us rather than... I'm not saying people don't do good mental health care now. Please don't get me wrong. I think there's some very, very good mental health care. But it's maybe the sort of... The, the society's changed. Maybe it's that's what it is. And, mm. and that we um, the referral rates have gone up a great deal into psychiatric care in patients that in years ago GPs would have managed but don't seem to have the time or the or, or whatever it is um, I don't know but um, so, you, there's lots of changes there really from mm. from maybe societal attitudes to professional practice and and to to um, maybe the the asylum era coming to an end and community care um, developing that you've touched on there but I guess a question I'm interested in, uh, specifically looking at your work in assertive outreach, is how do you think the care has been has changed with all those developments or, or changes that you've mentioned? How do you think the care has changed for those with severe and enduring mental illness, those patients you've mentioned with high disability, with, with comorbid problems? I think that's a very difficult question because, on the one hand, we don't want to go to the world of um, paternalism and patronage and locking people up in big asylums but there was a sense certainly for some people that they belonged somewhere in the world and that um, that in that sense they were more felt more secure whereas asking people to go and share houses with other people with serious mental health problems in the middle of not very nice estate seems to be asking a lot of them that mm. we you know we all remember when we were students or that we go and share flats with somebody and the difficulties that arise just in us sharing flats and getting on and, and dealing with people. But for people with serious mental health, they do have, you know, we talk about personality all that sort of personality disorder and all that stuff, but everybody who has mm. serious mental illness has has effects on their personality and the way they relate to themselves and the world. So we ask a lot of them. And then day services or whatever we want to call those, um, community resource, is more sort of, Targeted that everything has to be measured. Somebody can't just go and be and chat and be and have a cup of tea. They have to go to a group or they have, all this has to be measured in terms. And the non-statutory services or the third sector, as it's called, um, are, are linked into all this tendering and targets. And so that, I think, changes the whole sort of emphasis on how we, um, how we help people to find themselves in the world. Certainly from a more particular service, we've worked without any psychology input for, ever, apart from six months as a part-time psychologist, we have had no psychology input at all into people with serious mental illness. It just seems I've tried, tried, I've tried, I've tried, but um, that is a big gap. So somebody with a, an anxiety disorder has more chance of getting psychological therapy than than if you've got serious mental illness. That's not to say we can't do it. That's not to say we haven't developed people who, who in our team who have CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy skills, um, or that we have counselling skills, and all those sort of things, and we try to offer that as well. Um, and from the end of this week, the Assertive Outreach team is no longer going to mm. be in, mm. in, in Oxford. Um, and you might think I'm sad about that, but... Yes, I am in terms of it was something we've built up and I think we've delivered a very good service, but I think we're going to a system that is more accessible to people, more flexible. So 
we have people on the assertive outreach caseload who don't need us they could be managed in the more traditional way but to transfer somebody on and we don't we don't, we don't want to do that we just you know, yeah. got them better in inverted commas and so we don't yeah. want to pass them on but if we had a bigger system where people were able to if we could meet people's needs more so somebody came into the service they might need three contacts a week well let's give them three contacts and then in mm. six weeks they only need one so let's do that in a much more flexible way let's respond to patients needs rather than here's our system where can we fit you in mm. so I'm quite excited by the changes even though I'm right. losing something and mm. um, and so within these larger teams we can develop more specialist skills that as I mentioned, cognitive behavioural therapy for people with psychosis, we can develop motivational interviewing with the people who, who have substance misuse problems and, uh, and other problems. And we can develop each individual in the team's skills that they have. So their potential is, is, is coming out. They're not just fixed into whatever care coordination role it is. I'm not very keen on this generic mental health professional working. I, I would love uh, occupational therapists to do so, do what they train to do. Yes. I would love social workers to, to be more involved in in the sort of wider societal aspects of what we yes. do, uh, rather than being fixed into this um, role that they have at the moment. So mm. I think it's exciting, and I think it's better for everybody. Mm. But obviously, the transition is extremely difficult. Okay, thank you, David. Well, it seems that when you when you're talking about uh, the services and how they've changed it seems that the, uh, there's that things have become more formalized there's been there's uh, and in that you're concerned that some the, the care or the the ability for a service to really meet the patient's needs um, is lost potent or potentially lost if we are become too focused on on process and, and systems and actually the focus needs to be on the patient and meeting the needs of the patient and actually there needs to be a certain degree of informality in that care provision because because of their varying needs and, and with their carers and yes. with anybody else involved in them and why sadly why has the carers why is the carers movement there mm. because we didn't talk to parents and they're about for some reasons that I find exceptional I just don't understand it why are the things like think family come in which is a sort of service for patients or surely that's a role for social workers within mm. our team is to and for all of us to think are we just sort of blinded by just the sort of biomedical model that here's somebody with depression let's give them antidepressants here's somebody with bipolar let's give them the the bipolar treatment here's somebody with a psychotic schizophrenic illness let's give them the but there's everybody is the same as us everybody mm. has the same feelings and the same emotions that we do as mm. sitting here and let us recognize that don't let sort of blight people oh that's because he's got schizophrenia so we and that's because of this and that's and it's not mm. it's because they're human beings and we yes. have to try and find that way uh, of being and be a bit more informal about it and, and maybe spend a bit more time listening listening is something that is just so vital in our work and and maybe it gets forgotten. People are already thinking about what they're going to do at the beginning of the consultation, how they're going to go on from it, rather than just letting the person be and be listened to. And sometimes we don't need to do anything. 
Mm-hmm. I spent many years in practice where maybe I just ummed at people over ten minutes of water an hour and then saw them again and, and didn't actually do anything, but they were glad to have that. Yeah, well, that's, that's really good to hear the fact that, you know, actually that, that there's something about uh, the time spent with a patient as a, as a psychiatrist which is of value in itself without needing there's something to be done to the patient necessarily. What I'd want, like to ask you about, if, if it's okay, just, because in your work with in assertive outreach, you deal with a lot of risk. You deal with patients who are often very unwell and um, often very unwell with having taken substances and that can put them sometimes in a very high-risk category. And I was just wondering about your thoughts on managing that risk in the community and how how you go about doing that, what your thoughts on on that are? Um, I suppose I'm seen as somebody who's a positive risk taker. What does that mean, really? From my point of view, it means that I want to give people an, uh, another chance, another opportunity, another one, and another one, and another one. That's a bit like a sort of philosophy in, in the set of outreach. We just hang in there. Nothing will deter us from somebody doesn't turn up then we'll find ways of finding them so what positive risk taking for one thing most you know people with mental health problems don't have an enormously greater risk than the rest of the population or certain areas of the rest of the population for me it's more risky to walk down George Street in Oxford on a Friday or Saturday night than it is to see all my patients so um we all do risk assessments all the time. That's what we do in life. We, you know, we'll cross the road if we see some people we think might be heavy, and so we'll just look in the shop window and let them go past. That's yes. what we do all the time. So every time I see a patient, I'm doing a risk assessment. I don't need a bit of form to to look at to remind me that sometimes people become more risky, and that usually times when they're off their meds, maybe, or they're drinking more, or they're using um, stimulant drugs Um, and one has to sort of balance that and I think be Mm. honest with people that's fundamentally I think what you need to be is honest and not patients don't want you to be frightened Mm. they don't my god if you went to see a doctor and you thought he was anxious about what you wanted to say you'd run a mile wouldn't you I would Um, so patients do not want to see fear and anxiety in this even though we are dealing with things that may turn out badly but most people we see have choice in life it's their choice you can point out those choices to them and so as long as you share these risks and talk to your colleagues about patients that's what's so good about team workings that we can talk about somebody every day if we're worried about them and then we can all have a you know, some people might say, oh, I think we need a mental health assessment now, or, or we might discuss and let's see what we can do over the next couple of days. And so I think this sort of risk thing generates fear in people. And I think fear is not a great way to standpoint to work from. And yes, if things happen, they need to be investigated. Of course they do. Um, but if you have had this sort of way of for myself, if I behave honourably, I mean that in a sort of in the way it's meant, and I've written down everything and I've discussed it with other people, I have nothing to fear. Mm. Nothing. That's really good to hear you talking about that—the positive uh, risk-taking approach and being honest with patients. And and 
seeing the patient in it, in their context rather than the tick ticks on a, on a risk assessment form and having that 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 richer focus allows you to manage the, the patients. The extraordinary thing about the whole risk assessment business is there's no evidence. We all go on about evidence based medicine. There isn't any evidence. My guess is as good as a <laughs> as a scale, a tick box, and my in. You know, it's a sort of... I think the thing that's gone away from is the art of medicine. People don't really talk about the art of medicine anymore. But it is. It's a way of how your experience and your and, and your knowledge and it combines and your knowledge of the person and your relationship combines for you to have a sort of wider picture of how to manage them. In the same way, we might think that one medication is good for one patient. I couldn't explain to you why exactly, but mm. somehow it is. Um, so it's it is a bit of a mystery, and it can't really be measured, sadly. But um, I do think if we could all try to be a bit more reflective about what we do and try and see the person as as an individual, the world would be a in all sorts of ways would be a happier place. Mm. David, it's so good to hear your thoughts and your reflections. And from your your great experience, it's been it's been really good to spend the time with you here today. Before we go, I'd just like to ask you a question about the fact that you were a GP and, and now you're a psychiatrist. And I, I know in my experience there are quite a number of junior doctors who are um, debating about whether to go into either you know, uh, general practice or, or psychiatry. And what would you say to people who are... Uh, taken that choice and what would you say psychiatry has given you as in, in your career um, I love being oh, I've always loved being a doctor I think it's a fantastically privileged job and I think it's amazing that people just sit down and trust me and talk to me and then I help them and try and make a difference to them so being a, in, in general practice where you didn't know you might know the person who was coming in the door but you didn't really know why they come and I it was only recently I've discovered that the why I love being a doctor is that I like being a detective. And when I was a boy, I wanted to be a detective. And it is a sort of detective thing. You're trying to piece out um, the evidence that is put in front of you, however that's presented. So I love being a G GP, but it, w it became somewhat remorseless. Re um, it's relentless. Relentless, yes. And um, the whole business side of it didn't really attract me greatly um, and I've become more and more doing more and more mental health work so I think an experience in general practice is great for everybody mm. I left psychiatry basically because I wanted to try being a proper doctor whatever that was and um, I did discover what being a proper doctor was and that sort of experience of knowing that the parameters of normal are so wide as to be just immeasurable that people are so whoa, completely different but the skill in general practice is to have that tweak of thing that's a bit unusual that's a bit strange we better look at that more and helping people through um, terminal illness it was uh, I love doing that and um, people with chronic diseases, that how, how one person with rheumatoid arthritis is different from another person mm, in terms mm. of their disability, all that, I, but though people don't realise it, general practice is a very lonely job, you go to work, you do see your 30 pound, whatever it is, then you go out on your visits, you come back, do your admin, 
and see another 20 or 30 and you don't really meet your partners in any sort of clinical way and the and the, the refreshing thing I found about returning to psychiatry was this openness, this conversation, this constant, you know, the, some of the best clinical discussions I had are maybe in the corridor or maybe over a cup of coffee or at the end of a meeting we've gone on chatting. Um, and this constant uh, flow of meeting all sorts of different people and having a real multidisciplinary view of, of things and... Um, and that sort of so yeah, it's not a lonely job at all, mm. at all. Um, and so that that's what I've I've, lo- I've loved coming back to psychiatry. Mm. In some ways, I sort of think I should have come back years ago, years and years and years ago. I've just done a little bit of general practice, and then <laughs> as some people have done. But um, it really, I think it's a fantastic career. Right. David, it's been so good to speak to you today. It's so interesting to your, hear your views. And thank you for tuning in to uh, another episode of the Oxford Psychiatry Podcast Series. I hope you listen to some more. Thank you and goodbye.